Hi, and welcome to the Wires Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Chris O'Fault, I'm the editor of the Toolkit, and my guest today is the legendary editor of The Irishman, Thelma Schoonmacher. And today's podcast is brought to you by Focus Features, presenting Harriet, the true story of Harriet Tubman. Now nominated for two Academy Awards, Best Actress, Cynthia Erivo, and Best Original Song, Stand Up. And here's a short clip from that powerful song sung by Erivo herself. And now my conversation with Thelma Schoonmacher. Before a frame of this movie was shot, how did you and Mr. Scorsese discuss this film? I know emotional rhythms and, and, mm-hmm. and things like that are something that has to be some, some part of this dialogue. I'm wondering how, with The Irishman, this film was discussed mm-hmm. in terms of those things. Mm-hmm. But probably with his the rest of the crew, they come on three months before. I do. I'd, I only come on when we start to shoot. So he would have had lots of discussions with them about all kinds of things, mm-hmm. set design. Um, he would probably would have shown them some movies and things. But with me, mainly what he said, which was quite stunning, is that he wanted this to be a very simple film, deceptively simple. He didn't want flashy camera moves, flashy editing, uh, that the violence was going to be very quick and bland because he wanted to give the feeling of the banality of violence in the mafia, that it's a job. Um, There are not a lot of moral decisions that go on, which is, of course, the dilemma of the main character, Frank. So he wanted it very, very simple, even to the point that he said he didn't want Foley's. Foley's are when we always, if somebody puts a cup down, you reproduce that. The sound effects person makes a better sound for it. Somebody walks across the floor, um, you do the footsteps. He said, I don't even want those. I want it really stripped down, very, very simple. And I thought that was quite amazing. And it was hard for the sound editors to get into the groove after we finished the movie Um, and the sound mixer, too, because they're used to a very different approach. But this was so brilliant on his part. And I think that simplicity and the long, slow build towards the end is what gets you so deeply involved with the characters. Um, And he didn't want it to be a documentary about Jimmy Hoffa. Mm -hmm. So the voiceover even, he pulled way back on. Actually, they didn't write that much voiceover. My husband, Michael Powell, told us when we first met him, uh, never explain. Mm -hmm. And Marty has always loved that idea. He loves narrative movies but he doesn't like making them. <laughs> and so uh, he, this was the one where he just put his foot down and said, I'm not explaining everything. I'm going to respect the audience, which is what my husband said. Your audience is ahead of you. You try and stay ahead of them. And so respect the audience. And that's what Marty said. I'm, they can figure things out. And if they want to go home and Google things, fine. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to have endless voiceover telling them what's happening. I want them to uh, engage with the movie. And I don't want to tell them what to think. He hates it when movies tell you what to think with music or something or the writing. Um, 
And so, as it turns out, when I interviewed people, they had no problem at all with that. They enjoyed figuring things out for themselves. There are little tidbits that would be nice to know, which will come out eventually, you know. Uh, but he was absolutely right. And I must say, working on the film, I was astounded at how clearly he and the writer, Steve Zalian, had thought this all out, the structure, mm. and interweaving the long drive to, De to Detroit, which I was worried would take people out of the film, but it didn't. Um, he just had some very gut feeling about this movie, and De Niro had the same thing about the character, Frank. Uh, anyway, very long answer. <laughs> because there has been some elements of restructuring, I think maybe even in, in, in some of the more recent films, like like Wolf and Definitely. Silence, right? There was, there was... Absolutely. Yes, we, we often restructure. We don't often restructure, frankly. Departed is one of the ones that we restructured very heavily. Mm -hmm. um, and in Kundun, the, the film about the Dalai Lama, uh, we moved up the Chinese invasion at one point. Mm -hmm. I felt that was really going to help us. Mm. But um, we're always fooling around with things, moving things around, trying to shorten, tighten, but that wasn't the situation. This one was really was really kind of there. It was very much there in, in the minds of Marty and Zalian, and then he was just, he stuck to his guns when he was making it. I'm so impressed with him. Mm -hmm. I really am. Um, and so that, I think, you know, even the idea of an intermission, which we did think about, we didn't expect the film to be this long. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but it's so rich, and so many people, when we screened it, said, oh, I want more. Uh, what would you drop? Uh, let me see it again. Mm -hmm. um, so we left it long, and putting an intermission in would have broken that beautiful long build, oh, which yeah. is so important. And that last half hour with Bob, when he's dealing with what he's done, mm -hmm. is just so stunning. So I, it's a very unusual, unique film, and I'm thrilled to be working on something like that. It was a great treat for all of us. Even, you know, when we're finishing a movie, we have to screen it over and over again. My assistants have to screen it before we screen it to make sure. And nobody ever was tired of screening this movie, <laughs> <laughs> which we usually do get a little bored with it after a while. But sure, sure. You know, my instinct the first time I saw it was I was so moved. I, it, that basically, when the story catches up and the, they catch up mm. to to Detroit, mm. and then it, it becomes focus on the on the drive to, um, and the decision that they're they're obviously going to um, kill Hoffa, yeah. and I was so moved. I think that's about 70, 80 minutes, but I don't you know what better than I, I was so moved by that. And I was just in my first thing that I wanted to do was go back and watch it to see how much. Now, obviously, the backstory is important, but what was happening in that history, in yes, that buildup, that 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 because obviously, Mr. Scorsese makes these decisions very carefully. He's not being casual. If he needs to cut something down, he'll cut something down. But why we needed that two-hour-plus history to get to mm -hmm. this moment, mm -hmm. and it's something. And 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 to your point. When I watched it, I certainly didn't, it didn't bother me. The lulling pace didn't bother me. In fact, at that opening camera shot, when it comes in, you're kind of like, all right, I'm ready. You know, and, but there it is something that I have not worked out in my head of why we need so much of that mm -hmm. backstory for that powerful, that mm -hmm. powerful last 70 mm -hmm. minutes. Well, I think the fact that history did play some part in the 
movie and the character build. Marty, again, with the history, didn't want to explain. Mm -hmm. He wanted to use brushstrokes that were helping uh, affect the story. Uh, And the Mafia's gradual, for example, if it is true, uh, with the Kennedys. Um, And so I think we needed the complexity of all of that in order to really make the last uh, half hour work. Um, and there are, there are things that I think when you see it again, perhaps people will begin to realize that that little drive, that drive to Detroit, which starts in the very beginning, and you, they're packing luggage, and you think, oh, this is, they're going to a wedding. Okay, they're going to a wedding. <laughs> but actually, the mafia has already decided to kill Hoffa, but Bob doesn't know that. Mm-hmm. The De Niro character doesn't know that. So I think as you see the film again, you will begin to pick up on things like that. So that Bob, for example, when you see Joe Pesci in a phone booth by a road on that trip, and Bob can't hear what he's saying, and that's unusual for Bob because he probably always does hear. Yeah, he's always right. Uh, he's not included. And that's the beginning of some maybe some worry in his head uh, because those phone calls are all about, okay, how are we going to do it? We're going to make sure that Frank is in the car because Jimmy won't get in the car unless Frank's in the car. We'll have his son drive the car. Um, and his son was not involved. But all those that plotting was going on, and that's why Frank is not allowed to hear it until the absolutely <laughs> incredible scenes where the salad is being made and then the breakfast, which are my two favorite scenes Mine in too. the movie. Mine too. <laughs> yeah. And there is something about those scenes. It's it, there. There is that element of the dialogue by its very nature is it's not going to spell everything out. And But there's this element of just watching him and these extending of these moments. Um, because to a certain degree, I don't know that there's a moment that we notice as a, as a viewer that there's a decision, oh, I'm going to do mm-hmm, this or I'm not mm-hmm. going to do It's more just watching him let this all settle in in this in this way and it's amazing to me how long those just just the rhythms of getting in and out of that car getting in Mm -hmm. that plane Mm -hmm. sitting there with the Mm -hmm. cereal and being in those moments and letting those those because normally i'm not i'm telling you (laughs) you normally you get a little tighter as we move towards the end you get a little you get you get going and there's exactly and then it's just we're sitting there we're just watching him yeah and the choices in his acting are also so minimal (laughs) you know it's so minimal and it's a fascinating exercise because it's not about a character arc it's about watching him that's right it's about being drawn into him and and bob is so subtle you know, in his acting, which I think is one of the reasons he's not getting nominated more, frankly. He needs disapp- to scream a little bit more. <laughs> Very disappointing yeah. to me yeah. because people are used to him as a boss or as a violent person. And uh, he is in the stratosphere of acting for me in this movie. I've just never seen anything like it. And at a certain point, I just said to Marty, how does he do it? And Marty said, I don't know. It's a mystery. It's a wonderful mystery. Um, but... Uh, I lost the track here just a minute. Something you said. Um, oh, yes, the pacing. I wanted to talk about the pacing. Marty also spoke to me early on that um, he wanted it, it to be a leisurely pace. Um, 
not quick cutting. And uh, that long, slow push in to Bob at the beginning of the movie, I think, is in some ways uh, slowing you down and letting you know this is not going to be a slam bang explosions kind of movie, which normally people would start with, right? They have big, flourishing mm-hmm. beginning. Um, and uh, that pace really pays off in things, for example, when uh, he's chastised by Harvey Keitel because he was going to blow up this laundry. Right. Uh, that's deliberately cut very slow because the deadly pauses are indicating to De Niro that he's in serious trouble. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and every time we cut to Russell, played by Joe Pesci, he's not helping him. Um, so he's beginning to realize, my God, um, I'm really in trouble here. And then, I don't know if people pick up on it right away, but when Harvey Keitel's, uh, the De Niro character, says, I'd like to pay the money back to the guy. Can I pay the money? And Harvey Keitel says, he won't need it. And then he says it again, he won't need it. That means Bob has to kill him. And I don't know how many people get that. They may get it in reverse. But uh, see, that's very beautiful what Marty did, the opaqueness of the way the mafia talks. They never say murder, kill, shoot. Mm. It's always opaque language. And that's a very good example of it. He won't need it, right? And the character knows that if he doesn't kill him, he's going to be killed. So he has no choice. Um, And then he wanted to show the blandness again. What's the first thing he starts talking about? The gun. You need a good, you need a gun that nobody else has used. It's not, oh God, should I do this? Oh, this is terrible. No, it's, you know, and it keeps happening every time, you know, he's going to have to kill Joe Gallo. Okay, you see him choose the guns. And Marty wanted to make some sort of um, comparison to the blandness, banality, I'm sorry, the banality of the way people functioned in the Holocaust who were running the concentration camps. You know, that banal, it's just a job, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So he wanted to make that kind of connection. And so the pacing in the movie is deliberately not bum, 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 and a lot of films are cut much quicker today. But it was so lovely to be able to do this. Yeah. <laughs> because you are drawn in. You're drawn into Bob. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, the priest at the end, well, he's a real priest, um, was wiping tears away at the end of every take because Bob was so moving. He just can't say, I'm sorry. He can't do it. And that's so beautiful. It's fascinating because both with the De Niro and the Pesci character, it's as you said, it's this representing of giving so little and and, and, and the acting choices are so minimal. And these choices of the filmmaking are a certain lullness, a certain, there is finding humor in the banal, but there is this banal. And I have to, the the faith that we're going to be drawn in, 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 in Mr. Scorsese is tying a little bit one hand behind his back. We're used to, he's giving some of the flash and some of the swoop that we're used to and some of those violent hard cuts that you've mastered. Those, are, those, are, those aren't here. And so there's a, there's a faith that we're going to be drawn in. And coupled with that is what the modern audience is used to. Yeah. And also a three and a half hour running time, mm-hmm. which this film has completely earned. But I have to imagine at some point, you're, there's a point where we're doing all these things. Can we sustain mm-hmm, 
mm-hmm. with this approach for three and a half. Yes, well, you know, we didn't, we really didn't expect it to be this long. <laughs> we really didn't. But you know, there's so much richness here. There is, I mean, it's the acting is just sublime. And by the way, uh, the I, by subtlety, I didn't mean. You you stated something. What what did you say? You said something about the acting being it's minimal. Minimal choice yeah, is minimal. Yeah, no, yeah. I didn't mean that. What I meant was that Bob is able to show on his face everything that he's feeling without even moving. Uh, that's what I mean about the subtlety. It's very his body language. You know, at one point I said to him, "How did you decide? How did you figure out how to play second to these mm-hmm. two bosses?" When you're usually the boss, because it's in his body language, it's the way he speaks, it's, uh, and he never talks about his art. Mm-hmm. He just said, "Oh, I love working with those two guys." That was end of conversation, <laughs> right? But uh, I am just stunned by his ability to show tremendous feeling without moving. For example, in the breakfast scene, as we call it, which starts so blandly. You want cornflakes or total? (laughs) And then he's told this devastating news that he's going to have to kill his best friend. Bob doesn't move, Mm. but you see everything he's thinking on his face. Finally, at the end, he moved back, and there were tears in his eyes. And then when he gets in the plane, we held that shot way too long um, because we just couldn't believe what was what we were reading on his face. And again, he's just sitting there, but you have this incredible feeling of what he's going through knowing he's going to have to kill his best friend. And again, if he doesn't kill him, he'll be killed. So, um, And then when he gets to Detroit, it starts getting to be businesslike almost, yeah. right? Preparing making sure he gets in the car. That terrible moment where he nods at uh, Al Pacino. And Pacino, that's the sort of final uh, way to get him in the car. It's a terrible thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very subtle. So I, I'm just in awe of him. You know, I hadn't worked on his movies for 30 years. I had no idea. I never go to movies much because I work so all the time. But uh, I had no idea whether he was as good, you know, as when I cut Raging Bull and Goodfellas and Casino and King of Comedy. Um, But he's actually even better. And when he first discussed doing this character with Marty, he came into the office here and Marty said he couldn't get over how emotional Bob got when he was describing how he wanted to do the character. And he said, this is pure gold. We have to mine this. I think I read somewhere in an interview with him, with, with, with Marty, that, or Mr. Scorsese, was that, that the emotion that he was sensing from, from De Niro was almost, okay, we've got something here. Yeah, this, like I th- then to, he knew, I've got something really brilliant I can explore and develop mm-hmm. and... Um, but Bob is just, oh, I, I just can't get over him. And I'm, I have to say, I'm very disappointed that he's not being recognized for it. But he will be. You know, the great thing about Marty's movies is they last. They yeah. last. And what more can you ask than that? Yeah, it's very true. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the use of humor, which is obviously in the script and is on set. I, I, I to some degree, with some of the stuff with Mr. Pacino, I sense some of that was improv. <laughs> yes. But, but you know, we'll just start with the, even even we'll pick up right off off the car. You know, the car and that decision to get in the car. 
And then there's this fish bit, which is funny, but it's also, it's not only just that there's this fish bit, but that it's through two scenes. It's over multiple minutes. And it's, and I'm wondering if you, I mean, maybe that's not the perfect example, but it it seems to me to be kind of emblematic of how humor plays Mm. in this kind of Mm. banality and this, this lull. Yes. And especially while we're watching these characters. Yeah. In fact, you know, it's based on real fact. Um, Hoffa's son did have a piece of fish in the car. (laughs) And when they found that out, Steve Zalian and Marty just went with it. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, it's a way of, I don't know, just showing the lack of connection uh, in people who make their business killing people with what life is supposed to be about. Mm-hmm. He gets so obsessed with this stupid fish. Um, it's it, anyway. I, I when I cut that improvisation, I, you know, I was roaring with laughter. But when Marty and I screened the film, we only screened it ourselves mm-hmm. the first time. When Marty and I screened the film. We didn't laugh because the sense of dread of what was going to happen. Right. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think the texture of the movie is so rich. And one of the things that is great is that there's this terrible sadness at the end, but there's tremendous humor throughout. And that's that's a wonderful combination to have influencing the whole movie, giving that, that texture. It's It's great. And, of course, some of it just came from particularly Pacino's um, improvisations, you know, uh, we didn't expect. That one expect. where he pauses, when that pauses in his office, is that, you know, you're cracking up right now. <laughs> I, I laugh every time I see it. Someone it's keeps so, putting it up on the internet, and I keep it, laughing every time it's in my Twitter feed. It's so funny. And and then the way he'll suddenly drop his voice, yeah. you know, uh, he's screaming at them, then he'll go, I'm going to jail. So all of that, which is just so funny, I mean, uh, so that, but Marty always goes for that kind of unusual humor in his movies because he's always working the gray area of human beings, not the mm-hmm. the hero and the villain. It's something else. And so, whenever he senses humor, he's always had humor in his movies. I was just working on a restoration of. It's not just you, Murray. One of the best student films he ever made. Mm-hmm. It's filled with humor. Um, so he's always had that uh, in his bag of tricks. Feels like this one, it, it's needed with the dread. Yeah, because definitely, you know, I, Goodfellas is not a good example here, but 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 in the sense that um, the way that we zip through the history and we zip through there is a, in the music and we keep going, it, it, it's got that two layers of the the ugliness yeah. and the and when we and you have these moments where you go to silence and it's violence and you take away those things and you're like whoa, yeah. and it feels like with this one with the fact that. These characters aren't changing. There is no arc, and there is this inevitability. Hoffa is going to get killed. That it feels like that note of wanting to stay in that car in those moments. It feels like the humor is almost necessary in, in, yeah. in kind of like a gallows humor. Yeah, type particularly way. when you know uh, Al picks on Sally uh, Bugs yeah. about you know uh, and starts attacking him in the middle of this. They're driving him to his death, and he does this whole this whole thing. And of course, he embellished that yeah. tremendously. Um, uh, no, it's not. It wasn't about the pacing. It was something else she said. Um, anyway, uh, I'll come back to it. Uh, yeah, it, it was. It was such a. It's so surprising the movie, isn't it? I mean, you sort of never really know where you're going, and um, that I think that's very important. Yeah. 
Um, I oh, I know. I know yeah, what it was. Yeah. Okay, let me just finish. Yeah. So aside from the humor is this unexpected expression of love for each other from Al and Bob uh, in the pajama scene, as we call it. You know, where it starts out screaming about Tony Provenzano, and then he says to uh, the De Niro character, I want you to, to run for office and head this union to help me fight off the mafia. And uh, and then when Bob says, yes, I'll do it, that wonderful moment where Al comes over and hugs him and says, oh, I love you, I love you, that was such a beautiful thing I never expected in the movie. And particularly when you've been seeing Hoffa as this strong, you know, dictator-like um, mm-hmm. man who's capable of terrible uh, explosions of anger and that wonderful intimate moment which is again one of the things that makes this film so unique and again it's combined with the humor all these different segues is probably one of the things that makes it sustain a longer than anyone ever believed could be when I go into a theater and I watch people watch this movie you don't hear a pin drop I mean nobody's texting nobody's talking to their Mm -hmm. friend they are glued to the screen which is wonderful thing to see when you're in this, this movie, I think it was about a year at it, right? Something like mm-hmm. something. So you reach this point, and both of you two obviously have incredible meters and, and senses of these things, but you, you talk about that moment that you didn't know that that, that was registering as funny or not. And, and, and I imagine that whole end, how long can we have this? Mm-hmm, how long can we extend mm-hmm. this? Is there... Um, a test screening process. I don't. Maybe it's just trusted oh. friends and colleagues, oh, oh, or yeah. is there is there in that mm-hmm. sense of like uh, sensing how the instrument is playing off the audience? Definitely. Uh, let me just back up a little bit too to say that you know we didn't we really didn't expect this film to be this long. We really didn't. Um, and uh, so Marty and I screen always, as I said just the two of us for the first time. Then we opened up only to Marty's general manager and our producer. Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, I thought they're going to say, well, that that was great, but it's too long. But mm-hmm. they didn't. So I said, well, how did you feel about the length? They said, why? How long is it? They had no idea. Yeah. And um, so that was, I thought, well, they're friends. They're our team, right? Mm-hmm. But that kept happening here in this room where we would screen for first friends then we would screen for friends of friends, then we would screen for people we didn't know. So we screen a lot of times, sometimes as many as 12 different edits, and mm-hmm. I interview people afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, when the studios, when we're working for a studio, they often make us do a 400-member screening right. where we get cards, and that's always pretty uh, startling because people write the most awful things uh, sometimes. They also write wonderful things, but they mm-hmm. write the most horrible things. Anyway, these debriefings, I kept saying to people, is it too long? Is it too long? And they would say, no. Uh, what would you take out? And I want to see it again right away. So I, that's why we decided an intermission would have broken that beautiful yeah. long oh, build absolutely. to the last half hour, you know? And it also makes it feel like two halves when these two halves are so yeah. related. You know, uh, you know, you I've you've used the, the the term here, and I I read a couple interviews last night preparing for this, and you've used this term deceptively simple, which I, I think anybody that sees this film understands the deceptive part and the simple part. But one thing, and I would not have noticed this if it hadn't been for repeated viewings. But what's interesting to me is is how many of these scenes actually have 
and you don't notice it. Jump cuts. You have things. Oh, that yeah. Ma- you know, I was even oh, just yeah. watching last night the the the, when the, the scene where um, Hoff is in uh, in the courtroom and oh, someone yeah. comes up and it's like he's raising his son's hand and everybody's cheering and then just boom and then it's quiet and then he's talking about something else and you don't even feel these. Um, you don't feel you've you've done these cuts before, yes, and, yes. And, and the abruptness is is very purposeful. Yeah, here they're very smooth, and you don't like I said, I I, I don't think I would have gotten there until like the well, third there viewing. are some really big ones that yeah. that we were forced to do because mm-hmm. we couldn't figure another way around. I do think that I was noticing this morning working on the restoration of Marty's. It's not just you, Murray. Tons of jump cuts, yeah, and yeah, he, yeah. and he's always loved jump cuts, yeah, yeah. but. Um, in this film, uh, they're often uh, necessary, uh, more than intended, actually. The most important one being when Bob, that incredible scene where Anna Paquin says, why haven't you called Joe? And he then goes and calls Hoffa's wife. I mean, it mm. is just, <laughs> I've never seen anything mm. like it. Anyway, uh, what happened was, that is all take one, by the way, the actual phone call. Um, but when he first hears, when he's holding the phone and he's dreading, he's obviously dialed and he's just dreading, hoping maybe she's not going to be there. And he hears her voice and the way he picks up the phone and says, Joe, uh, was absolutely brilliant. And it was not the same take as the first take. And so we have a man named Brian Battles who can morph things for us. Sometimes when we don't want to show a cut. Kind of like a stitching uh, Digitally, cut. Yeah. they can, you know like they're doing in 1917. Uh, and he just couldn't crack it. He tried and tried for months, and he couldn't. And Marty said, I'm not giving up on it. Jump cut it. Mm-hmm. And there's a jump cut when he's choosing the guns at one point. Mm-hmm. And, but that, of course, fits in with a world as violent as this, as jagged as this. You never know whether you're going to live another minute or not. Um, and uh, so it, he's adamant about that. We will never compromise on an actor's performance. If it requires a jump cut, that's what we'll do. Um, we're not interested in smoothness and um, babying the audience. We want to challenge them. And certainly we don't want to tell them what to think. That's Marty is adamant about that. He hates it when music tells you what to think and things like that. So that's why his use of music is often so uh, uh, brilliantly different than what you expect. It's almost counter. Yeah. It's almost against It counter. is. Speaking of music, I, I, my understanding is you had um, the Robbie Robertson music, the score for this while you were cutting. Is that true? Did you uh, have... the, the Robbie Robertson? Yeah, the, the score. The, yes, you, uh, which was, uh, you're not talking about the pre-recorded music. You mean the Robbie Robertson music. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, we yeah. had it, oh, I would say sort of halfway through the cutting we had it, yes. It's 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 all these things that we've discussed in music form, you know, in terms of the pacing and the rhythm. I'm wondering about the decision of when to use that mm. because it's this thing mm. where it's like it's odd because it really we were talking about how often uh, the two of you are often working against the grain with yes. music, and this is kind of almost emph- dialing into yes. what you, the pace of this. I'm wondering yeah. how how the decision of where and when to use that. Right, and so I think it was uh, Marty knew right away. Uh, in the beginning, in the still of the night, the opening piece oh, and yeah. the end piece. And by the way, if you notice, it's used over the wedding. The slow motion wedding. Which yeah. is to make it feel like a funeral. Because for Bob, it is a funeral. And 
uh, the look on his face there, oh, my God. Uh, so he he said when he was, he often goes to a hotel room where no one can reach him and just sits and listens to music, not music that he's necessarily going to use, but to inspire him. And he starts thinking about the style of the movie, camera work, editing, acting, um, and he said that piece just was in his head from the beginning. And he explained to me, and he's also explained it slightly differently in other interviews I've seen, that they kill in the night, and it's the end of his life at the end of the movie. So in the still of the night is perfect. But who would do that? Nobody would do that but him. So he had these very clear ideas of where he was going to do the piece of music that's over the Anastasia in the barbershop, uh, for example. But when it came to sort of nuts and bolts things like Bob throwing guns away on the river, it wasn't there. That wasn't an appropriate place to use uh, a familiar or a song that, by the way, he was matching the decades to. Uh, and Rodrigo Prieto, our, our cameraman, was also changing the look of the film as the decades progressed. So it was necessary to have uh, a score sometimes to drive the movie. Uh, and we did fool around. We moved it around and used different pieces of it and tried all kinds of things with it, yes. Mm -hmm. But not the stuff that he already had in his head that he was going to use from the pre-recorded. Are the songs often with him? Um, with the, the 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 popular music, the still of the night is that is that is that almost you're talking about thinking about it? Is it something that's almost written in uh, while while shooting a scene? Well, or, or is it dis yeah, is it a process uh, of post and discovering which one? Well, works? certain no, he had so many pieces he already knew on this movie. However, on a movie like Casino, he had a whole wall filled mm. with choices. So, for example, for each scene, there would be seven different pieces of music he wanted to listen to, and we would, and then we would say, well, this these two are pretty good, but then one would click on that. Not here. This was all already in his head. And um, he, Nick Pileggi told me that when they were writing the script for Goodfellas, there's the wonderful scene where the De Niro character is thinking about how he's going to kill Maury, the very annoying man, <laughs> who was actually Bob's landlord at that time, by you the know, way. I read that when he passed. I read that when he passed, <laughs> and I saw, and then I saw a YouTube clip that he's in the back of the frame of King of Comedy. <laughs> <laughs> he was, and he was so annoying in life, and so they thought, "Oh, he's perfect." Well, just, so anyway, as he's thinking about killing Maury, um, there was a wonderful thing in the piece of music by Cream, where Bob's eyes, we we synced up Bob's eyes movement with the music, mm. and um, that kind of thing. Uh, Marty already knew he didn't know about the eye movement, but he knew that was going to be. So he said to Nick Pelleggi as they were writing the script, he said, "Put Cream in and." Nick is not that familiar with it. He said, what do you mean? He said, just write cream down. <laughs> so that's that's how early yeah. he sometimes knows. I don't want to get too far into the de-aging, but I am curious just about the mechanics of it. You essentially, I know both you and Mr. Scorsese are looking at early tests, seeing if this would work, but... In this room. In yes. this room. <laughs> but essentially you are editing the raw footage to, mm -hmm. to, you know, with the marks. I know there's mm -hmm. no cameras and stuff, but you're you're editing almost to the point that you're fine cut. That's right. And uh, screening, by the way. Mm -hmm. We screened many, many times without the de-aging and mm. nobody minded. Yeah, right. It you was so weird. When I, yeah. I, I, I couldn't believe it. You know, uh, the, no, no, no. They said, we, we don't mind at all. It, it was great. We loved it. Uh, uh, and that was stunning to me because I think the acting is so good. They draw you in. You you get so involved in them. 
whether they look old or not. So, yeah, it was. Um, we were almost uh, completely locked by the time before because you don't want to waste money on a shot that, for example, a lot of big special effects movies they, you know, they may work on four hundred shots that are thrown out, but mm-hmm. not with us. It was very very little, and we worked really closely with. Pablo um, Hellman, who came up with this, and the people at ILM, they would send us our first de-aging shot, and then we would say, well, I think, you know, maybe this has to be changed a little here, maybe with, particularly with De Niro, because of his subtlety, maybe you have to put back in a few wrinkles here or there, Mm -hmm. because we've lost something, because the acting is not just in the eyes, and so uh, it was very good collaboration and they were wonderful they never objected to any of our changes requests for changes and they churned out a huge amount of work people all over the world if you look you know the movie is three and a half hours long but nine minutes of it is end credits (laughs) but 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 that but that idea though so so you're looking at tests but the idea of actually seeing the movie so uh, you know this movie premiered in in new york Mm -hmm. uh late september so somewhere around probably this time last year, you're mm. probably as close to picture locked as, as yes, in, yes, in, uh, it was sort of around March. They needed six months. Yeah. They told us, and yeah, and so then there's this process. I imagine, although the actual editing is done, there's a process of constantly screening and back and forth Definitely. with that. Yes, and my understanding, and I think you've kind of just said this, but it's the idea of okay. Sometimes we have to dial it mm-hmm. back because especially I imagine what, as we've discussed this whole time, Mr. De Niro and Mr. Pesci's performances are so small yes. in the best way imaginable. Yeah. yeah. Right? Is that that's that's really did yes. that ever affect the cut? Did you ever did that ever? Not really, not yeah. really. It was interesting because we thought maybe we would have to change performances. We didn't know, yeah. but because it was all new, uh, but in fact we didn't. No. It, they were able to make the changes we felt were needed and willingly and wonderfully. You know, it was, they had a vast number of people working on this all over the world, as you can tell from the titles of people in Thailand. And, <laughs> the time but, is just insane with these. It, it, it takes so much time to do these things. Yeah, and but um, they, it was, you know, he invented this process for this movie because Scorsese said, I can't, we were working on silence in Taiwan and Pablo was there and uh, Marty said, I can't ha- find, I don't think there's another actor who can do De Niro young mm. or Pesci or Pacino. So I have to come up with something. And um, and so he said, I'll, I'll figure it out. And he did. They, they, you know, Bob was wearing sometimes two, a red and a green dot here, which wasn't that distracting. And on their clothes were little metal chips, which were tracking their body movement. There were two 3D infrared cameras on either side of Marty's lens. Um, and but it didn't involve the helmet, the dots all over the face, the two cameras well, the here. The two cameras are really the big thing, right? That's normally how they do it. Marty said they will not act that. They, yeah. Look at the way they improvise with each other. They're yeah. never going to be able to do that. They'll end up improvising about the camera on their face. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was. He said that. Well, and you know that's partially probably why it took so long to get it funded because it was expensive, mm-hmm. but it was worth it. And uh, Netflix said. You know, Marty's general manager said Netflix, they tried for seven years to get this movie mm-hmm. made. And his general manager said, Netflix will give you the money and they'll leave you alone. And Marty said, done, even though he was sad about the theater thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think it's a real blessing because I know some of the last few films have been 
longer mm-hmm. necessarily, but I imagine there's always like when it's a theatrical and it's an awards thing, I have to imagine, I know you're going to make it as long as it needs to be, but there's like, <laughs> we should probably give Paramount like a 240, right? Like to be fair. And I just have to imagine that like, that would have been a killer thought process oh, yeah. for Irishmen, right? Yeah, because it's such an unusual movie, you see. I mean, if if we had felt that people weren't engaging or it was dragging mm. or something, but what... Nobody ever said that to us. I understand there are people who feel it's too long, but everybody I interviewed just said, "No, no, no! Don't, don't change it! Don't change it! Don't let me see it again." <laughs> Last one. You were talking about the fact that uh, so much of this is letting the audience, audience figure it out. The 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 idea of a title sequence, and it's not Irishman. Oh, oh, you know, right, right there. You know, it's. You it's, mean I, I heard you paint houses yeah. right after? Yeah. Is that was that something that was always in the head? Was that is that kind of like always how you refer to yeah, this film? I, as I, I think, always well, I uh, from what I understand, um, everybody felt it would it was wrong to lose the title because so everybody knew Scorsese's next movie with De Niro was going to be The Irishman, The Irishman, The Irishman, mm-hmm. and they felt we couldn't change it to I Heard You Paint Houses, but mm-hmm. I think we all wished they had, and so mm-hmm. Marty did both. It's <laughs> 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 And how about those titles that smack up, you know, shot uh-huh. in the head, which, you know, he was very specific about that. He said, I want it to be a shock. We're interrupting something suddenly, and... It has to be always Angelo Bruno shot in the head or blown up or um, that has to be the first word. And you cannot imagine what I went through with the foreign versions because in certain languages you can't do that. Mm-hmm. And I would say, what do you mean you can't do that? Uh, but that's – and then the shape of it. In other words, it's not a title going along the bottom. It's this thing that smacks you in the face. That was a brilliant idea of his. Mm-hmm. So we worked very hard to get that reproduced in the foreign versions. It wasn't easy. Mm-hmm. Because it, it is the way they come on. It almost is the con. It almost contradicts some of the things that we've been talking about here. Right. It is that. That's right. Bang that that thing that we're used to. And so. and I think it's his way of the whole movie is his way of showing why you shouldn't be in the mafia, which he's been trying to do all his life. But uh, Goodfellas, everybody loved Goodfellas so much that they all wanted to join the mafia. You know, that's not what he wanted. He um, wanted to show that they didn't take care of their women when the men went to jail and blah, blah, blah. But this movie, those sharp, jolting things about how they are going to die uh, is part of the statement he's making here. Very uh, complicated way and very subtly, which you really feel in the last half hour of the movie. The Kennedy one, the, 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 the dad, Joseph Kennedy, that is just... It is maybe the most morbid, but also the <laughs> funniest moment. <laughs> but you know, it was so wonderful. I think Marty was so brilliant the way he shot the Kennedy assassination. Mm. You never see it. You never see Walter Cronkite. You he, you see what's happening to them on mm. their faces. What a brilliant idea to do that! And then there were a zillion shots we could have used for when, instead of the coffin down the stairs, which was what Marty remembered vividly and he said it has to be that shot well it was terrible stock footage it's out of focus it's Mm -hmm. but he wouldn't give up there were thousands of other things we could have used Mm -hmm. but he said no it has to be that one i remember the last one i wanted to ask you you've been very generous with your time thank you oh please i'm delighted to do it i love this movie (laughs) (laughs) um i'm wondering if you talk a little bit about the balance of we're talking about so much about 
watching the emotion of, of Frank Sheeran and, and, and feeling this down the end. But there is this element, you talk about the Kennedy assassination, and it's built into the voiceover of him being an unreliable, you know, you don't want to buy an unreliable narrator to a certain degree. And once again, the balance that you strike in particular in that last hour is is perfect. But I, I have to imagine that's not something that necessarily comes easy in that sense of, we're supposed to feel his emotions and be so genuine of this, but there is this necessary skepticism of him as as historian. And those two things, one would think, just intellectually standing back, could be contradictory working against each other. They don't. But I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how, how to approach that. Yes, well, you know, the book, which I actually have never read, which is the first time I've never done that, because I I wanted to see how Marty evolved this movie on the screen. I always much prefer that because he often doesn't put in the scripts a lot of what he's going to do. But uh, Marty was aware that this was a deathbed confession um, by there was a man interrogating him, the author of the book, and he didn't know himself, Marty, whether it was true or not. But who knows who killed Kennedy, for example? Mm. We may never know who killed Kennedy. We may never know who killed Hoffa. But it was, and particularly because of Bob's passionate feeling about the character, uh, it was a vehicle to use to to create this wonderful movie. So uh, I I never think about Bob actually being the sort of narrator of this movie. Mm. Uh, is that what you're saying? Well, I mean, you... I mean, I'm even thinking about the fact that. As you know, we we start off with this idea that this voiceover is coming from him, the, the older ah, man. Ah, yes, and, yes. And, and then, I see. And, and then there is this idea, you know, especially towards the end with the arrests and stuff. Yeah. And you, you've got these things. It's <laughs> like, well, actually, no, you were up for murder and attempted murder, and <laughs> yeah, yeah. and 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 sometimes he's not completing sentences. Or <laughs> yes. doesn't know that, you know, and so <laughs> yes. so there is this idea that this is this old man telling the story a little bit, like I imagine yeah. how the, yes, the frame yes. of the book is. And it, once again, it's the emotional thing and and what they do with that character. But it's 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 fascinating to me to. To, to do that, which is clearly the meat of this movie and the emotion of the movie, and then also to, to hint at that stuff, to put that stuff in and, and to have that present there. No, you're quite right that uh, his point of view in the voiceover, you're right to remind me of that, his point of view in the voiceover is often ludicrous, you know, um, because he's just not getting it. You know, (laughs) and for example, when he says, you know, the reason they were Kennedy was supposed to get Cuba back for us and we were going to get the casinos back and and, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it didn't happen. So what what was that about? Did I miss something? I mean, it's so ridiculous for him to describe it that way. (laughs) You're quite right. But that that's very deliberate in the writing. I think they very deliberately wanted to go that way uh, to make his voiceover sometimes um, show how he's just not understanding about certain aspects of life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you are right to be proud of this movie. This thing is, oh, is, is wonderful. All of these movies you've done with Mr. Scorsese are wonderful, but this one uh, uh, is, uh, is, is really special. It's very, very special. And uh, for us to be at this at our greatly advanced ages, to be working on a movie this great is really quite unique. I mean, I think most directors are not performing at this level. 
at our age. And so uh, I just can't believe I'm still <laughs> working on such great material. There's, there's a clip going around. Um, I think it's from um, the New York stories mm. um, of the two of you in the editing room. Oh, it's, yes. It's, the, the French. It was the only time Marty allowed a, a film crew in. This is like late 80s. Yes. So this is, yeah. this is three decades ago. But it, it's. I was exhausted after two minutes of watching him in the editing room. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I could just keeping up with him, and I imagine that maybe maybe it's not quite as as speed, but I have to imagine that there is still oh, that yeah. drive and that push and that just like oh, uh, yeah. it, being uh, being in the editing room with him is one of the greatest things. I wish more people could, and also being in dailies, we sit right mm -hmm. there, and he tells me constantly what he's thinking about every shot, what his dreams are for the movie, how he's dealing with this actor, and. Uh, and that is incredible. But the stuff that goes on in the editing room is just incredible. And he's got such high standards. He's very super critical of himself. And he's got very high standards and a brilliant sense of editing. Mm. Um, he's a great editor. And so uh, it's just the richest experience anyone could ever have. And I, I, I've worked on 50, you know, over, or, I mean, I've worked for 50 years with him because there were 10 years when I couldn't, mm -hmm. but, and 26 films or something. I mean, I'm just blessed. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much. Wonderful. Thank you so much. You, you were great. Thanks for loving the movie. Too. Well, that's easy. That's the easy part. Mm -hmm.